1: Hey, surfboard lovers, guess what? The Boardroom International Surfboard Show is coming to Del Mar, California, October 8th and 9th, 2022, presented by U.S. Blanks, a massive hall filled with state-of-the-art surfboards and the entire surfboard manufacturing industry all under one roof. Great opportunity to network and to see the latest and greatest from these surfboard builders. This year, we're honoring Timmy Patterson in the Icons of Foam Tribute to the Masters Shaping Competition. Timmy will have eight shapers honoring him through a replication of his classic surf designs. Also, the classic movie, movie free ride the movie Bill Delaney's all-time classic film will be looping for everybody to see in addition we'll have the boardroom talks relevant insightful and informational discussions about topics de jour zio baffa organic wines will present best in show this year the category big wave guns each and every surfboard builder from around the world is invited to build a gun and be a part of the show and it's free to enter with over six thousand dollars in cash and prizes california gold surf auction with the theme of free ride will have boards under the auction gavel carver skateboards will have their wave mini ramp for everybody to skate and enjoy and bring your youngsters timmy patterson is going to put on a shaping demo and display and uh, kids are going to be invited to shape their own small little mini surfboards and icon foam timmy patterson will be providing guidance and of course we'll have live music and food and beverages there will be something for everybody surfboards wetsuits fins gear the surfboard industry trade show that you cannot miss boardroom international surfboard show presented by u.s blanks october 8th and 9th 2022 in del mar i worked with evan slater at surfer magazine for a few years this guy is street smart emotionally intelligent and has plenty of business savvy and slater's a damn good surfer as a young man he was a dominant competitor in nssa events and later on a charger at big wave venues such as mavericks both free surfs and in competitions but on top of all that and perhaps most importantly evan slater displays a genuine humility that is sorely lacking in today's look at me social media culture on this episode of The Boardroom Podcast, Evan Slater, let us begin. Evan Slater, welcome to The uh, Boardroom Podcast. It's good to see you.
2: Yeah, good to see you, man. Do you drink coffee in the morning? I tend, typically no. I, uh, <laughs> I have these weird... Um, natural energy uh supplement things that i'm kind of addicted to really what what are those (laughs) it's this Arbon company not that we're like weird amway people but yeah Yeah. they make these little packets that um it's like ginseng and those kind of low sugar Uh like no sugar but um yeah they they kind of wire you up and i probably go through at least um three of those every morning and i like a lot of ice in my drinks um so for you know uh For some reason, I (laughs) have
3: to drink the (laughs)
2: All right,
1: fair enough. I know you realize this, but you'd be the first to kind of poo-poo it. But you hold a unique place in our culture in that you were a professional surfer on some level. You were uh, editor of Surfing Magazine and Surfer Magazine. And in an editorial capacity, that was what was Swell and Surfline. Then you worked at Hurley. Now you're at Billabong and you've been in the big wave arena as a competitor and just sort of an overall or So you've lived this, a life well lived, so to speak. Um, you've really seen all sides of the industry. Can you speak to that a little bit, your, your ability to see things from a bunch of different perspectives?
2: Yeah, I feel super grateful that I've been able to be a part of so many, many ecosystems um, within surfing, you know, like, cause some people just are, brand people or media people or whatever, but I've just, um, I think just the through line throughout my whole career is I just super passionate about surf culture and, and what inspired me as a kid and trying to contribute back. And then the other thing selfishly, I, I just love surfing. So, um, you know, the, 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 the career path that I've taken has always been somewhat, um, with the ulterior motive of allowing myself to, to ride waves <laughs> yeah you
1: know I, I think a lot of us are like that and and it made me think there was a guy who you know who i i don't know his name but he was a, a competitive surfer at ucsd i believe
3: mm-hmm.
1: and he did something unique and i think you did a piece on him and people who surf a long time ago but he yeah. i think he went to ohio state and became a doctor
3: mm-hmm.
1: and you mm-hmm. know this gentleman and and yeah. and i always think of that guy I go god that was a a bold move from a guy who loves surfing to realize, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put surfing on hold, which seems like something you and I couldn't do. Right. But you look back on that guy. He's probably got a successful career. He's probably a great surfer still. And he probably has yeah. all the money in the world to go traveling around and, and do everything.
2: Yeah. His last name escapes me. His name's Dave. I remember. Um, and he was a great surfer. He was like an NSSA um, national team guy, and then he went and became a doctor, and became one of the first doctors, I believe, if I remember correctly, Matt um, Tabarua. So that was the ultimate gig for um, a lot of frothing surfers <laughs> for a while. <clears throat> yeah. So he ate a little bit of a sandwich, and then it paid off in the long run. Yes. Let's
1: let's look at your. Um, let's go back to your competition days, because frankly, I don't know too much about it. I know you were probably the team captain at UCSD and surfed in the NSSAs, but how did your professional career go?
2: Yeah. So um, like, like a lot of kids growing up in Southern California who, you know, really fell in love with the sport of surfing. I kind of gave up organized sports, I think in like uh, early junior high and kind of dove into the amateur um, world of surfing. Pretty clueless initially, obviously. I didn't have like a family that were surfers. My dad loved the beach, but beyond that, it was all new and um, unknown for me. Um, Grew up in uh, Santa Paula, which is like um, about 12 or I don't know, like 15 minutes inland from Ventura. So Ventura was my outlet uh, for going surfing, but you know, I, the only way I could get there was from my dad. So I really appreciated that those couple days a week that I would be able to get out there. Right. Um, But then as, as the contest thing really took off, like My generation was, you know, like my good childhood friends were guys like Taylor Knox. And um, I mean, you've heard of like Jamie George and um, just all those like Ventura, Santa Barbara, uh, Oxnard kids that um, came out of that area that all worshiped Tom Curran. Um, And uh, so, uh, yeah, I I had the same dreams that a lot of those kids had um, in becoming a pro surfer. Um, But my parents were also very. Um, did we're pretty inflexible about like, Hey, you know, the traditional route is going to college after high school, not going on tour. And I, I clearly like, I, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't good enough to go on tour anyway. So, um, it was a good move to go, go to UCSD post high school when a lot of my friends were, um, essentially going on tour and becoming pro surfers. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how it, it really like started, um, and then UCSD was a, sorry, I'm really rambling here, but UCSD was a, a whole nother experience because, you know, yeah, I was still able to um, really infuse uh, a really steady diet of surfing and surf life into my college career as well.
1: What about professionally? Mm-hmm. Did, were you a professional surfer? I mean, I, you went on surf trips. With yeah, a I got rusty.
2: Paid, I got paid to surf for sure. Um, it It was also a bit of a, hybrid, um, model for me. And, and I mean, I always joke about back when I was pretending to be a pro surfer, um, because there was a time when, you know, a lot of people could make decent livings, um, or, you know, at least modest livings, um, chasing photos in the magazines and, um, you know, getting the occasional big wave shot and, you know, all the rest. And I kind of, Tapped into that for a while, um, while at the same time getting my um, BA in sociology at, at UCSD. Um, so that was uh, an interesting time where I, d- I don't know if I could have I-, I could replicate that um, to the same level now, um, or it could, could, because it was just a different time for the industry and magazines were so important, right? So if you had an angle into getting photos in the magazine, um, you, know, you could actually get paid by... Companies,
3: <laughs> which was yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. You brought up magazines. Sort of a weird time that you and I and all of us in our generation went through, this This time where magazines were our life. I mean, you know, it was sort of the, the cultural arbiter. It sort of drove culture.
3: Mm.
1: And then they're gone, you know? <laughs> yeah. what, what were your thoughts when you found out Surfer Magazine was no
2: longer. Well, uh, as you said, like that was our world growing up, right? This was like Valhalla of, uh, you know, the surf world. Um, my dad would pick me up every afternoon from like middle school and elementary school to take me surfing. And every Tuesday afternoon, um, there like once a month there'd be the new magazine that he'd bring, you know, the new surfer. And um, gosh, I just remember like, I just clearly remember holding that thing, um, in my hands, like driving the 126 out to uh, Surfers Point, or now Sea Street, whatever you want to call it, just pouring through every image and word. And um, you know, I, I think you know a lot of kids share that same experience back then. So um, for me, as growing up, that was like to get to that point, and, and as a career, was such a, a huge goal, and just feeling like you, you kind of made it to like be working for Surfer Magazine, this institution. Um, so yeah, it is a bit of a, um, tearing a cornerstone of our culture, um, out of the, the, the foundation when magazines just sort of vanished. Right. Um, and you can argue that, you know, people are getting more media than ever in the digital uh, world that we all live in. But I, I not, I'm not a nostalgist. I don't, I don't like believe in the good old days necessarily, but I, I do believe that, um, you do miss something when you're, when you don't have, that steady uh, monthly diet of like stories and photos, and just, you know, like I got, I just the tapestry of surf culture in print.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I, I think about the magazine and I say to myself, well, it was foundational and that you could kind of count on it. And today, the way media is just coming at us from all sorts of different angles, yes, you really don't know which one, like is the voice of authority where at least right. back in the day, you're like, Hey man, this is kind of what's happening.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, in a lot of ways it's, it mirrors, um, broader culture, right? It's the dem- democratization of, uh, media and, and opinion. Um, now all opinions are facts, <laughs> you know, like all of that. So, um, there is something to be said about having these filters and, and, um, curators, I guess, of culture, because then there's a little bit more of a, consensus people could disagree with uh you know a point made in an article but at least we're working off the same baseline whereas now it's just all over the place
1: Uh, editorially you oversaw some amazing things um and and maybe the listeners don't know but at some point you were hired by steve hawk i believe to be the managing editor at surfer magazine
2: right well yeah it was interesting because i like as i was telling you like i sort of was just dabbling in two worlds of like trying to make money as a pro surfer, you know, chasing, um, bigger waves. Like I moved up to San Francisco to try to, you know, throw my hat in the ring at Mavericks and more, more more often than not just went over the falls. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so there was, it was kind of this time where I was like a little bit uncertain, like where my career was going to go. Cause I knew like being a pro surfer wasn't like a long-term career. I went, ended up going back to San Diego state to get my master's in sociology. And I kind of remember, um, believing or just uh, making myself believe that I didn't want to be in the surf industry and wanted to be a, a sociology professor or something s- strange. So I like went that route of like taking the, um, it's not, uh, uh, the GRE and, uh, uh I was thinking GED and I got past that, uh, GRE and, and just like going into like grad or going beyond the master's program to get a PhD and all that, that path. Um, and then I think it was like a year and a half into that program, um, Steve Hawk called because I had already been going on like surf magazine trips and I was writing for Rusty at, at the time. And, you know, we did like cloud nine and a Madeira and a bunch of other like rad places. And I was always the the one that would volunteer to write. and I, I was a college educated writer. So it was awful writing, just pedantic, overly pedantic and thinking I was really smart and all of those things. And um, so I, I, don't, I don't, I think initially Steve knew I could put some thoughts together, but I don't think he was a fan of anything that I would put down on, on screen or paper. Um, but he, he took uh, a leap of faith, I think um, with me and um, offered me the job because Sam George left and went on sabbatical for a bit and those jobs didn't come up very often. Right. And um, so I decided to take it and um, yeah, I didn't really look back at the, I remember the, Um, the, the salary was $26,000 a year to be associate editor. Ben Marcus was the managing editor and Steve Hopper, uh, my (laughs) boss. Awesome. (laughs)
1: Wow. That's quite, what, what did your parents say about this? When you changed tact,
2: you know, at that point they're, um, supportive. They just saw how much, um, passion I put into both, both sides of, you know, um, scholastics and education and my surfing, you know, and so, um, I think they were excited. And at the, at the time, you know, Surfer magazine, they didn't, they didn't really care about the salary. They're like, this, that's like huge. It's like sports illustrated for surfing and being a, you know, yeah, surf journalist and all that was like a, a real career path. So um, yeah, it was, um, it didn't seem like a, a stupid decision at the time. Sure. Still <laughs> no,
1: Of course not. You, you did great stuff there. What, what are some of your favorite memories from your days specifically at Surfer magazine?
2: At Surfer, it was really just diving into the um, the history of the sport. I mean, just knowing that you have this new responsibility as this like twenty-four or five-year-old kid that um, you know, you know, thinks he's you know is obviously just like in that like up-and-coming generation crew, but d- doesn't necessarily have a f- true grasp of um, you know our heritage and the le- legacy that you know surfing continues to build on. So um, I was basically um, jumped in by some of the, the senior, um, contributing editors or former editors of the time, guys like Matt Warshaw, um, you know, uh, Steve, of course, and, and, and Sam George and, uh, Steve Berlotti and a bunch of other guys. And, and really Matt was the one who was instrumental in, um, giving me like a crash course in the history of surfing and gave me like all these different books that I needed to read. And, you know, I'd come back to him with, uh, like it was like a almost like a night school (laughs) which was really fun so that was one really great memory and this was like kind of as the internet just started so we were still like faxing a lot and doing weird stuff like that so that like I get articles from Dave Parmenter via fax um, like his coyote lines and some of those other columns that he did and this was after like some of the bigger travel articles that he did but he um, he was you know we got him on board to to do a, a regular column. And so they all, they all came through facts and Derek Hind as well was famous for um, scribbling notes um, on facts and sending over his, uh, his contest um, updates and um, top 44 reviews that were, you know, obviously still burned in the brains of so many surfers of our generation and before. And um, Dora,
1: Dora too. I remember we got a fax from Dora one time.
2: That... Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty epic. The, I'd say the last like great memory um, I have from, well, two, two great memories. One, um, just being able to be amongst the, um, just the, the, the gods of the surf media world, like guys like Art Brewer and Divine and Survey and all of them, uh, Rob Gilly, like being just kind of accepted and brought in as a young kid was really special to me and they, they were all so talented. And, um, the other thing was the, the responsibility of creating that, um, that last issue in 1999, our big issue that was, you know, a century of surfing and, you know, again, young kid feeling like he had the pressure of the world on him trying to, you know, tap, um, you know, all the, (laughs) the knowledge and experience from all these other greats, um, within the surf media world was, um, a big challenge, but really proud of that issue. And that's, actually the only issue that i still um keep from that time
1: well i'm glad you brought that up because i have that in my notes here which i'm assuming is the duke kahanamoku issue yes so i remember that being um sort of um you know there was some there was some pushback so to speak from people within the building Mm -hmm. um but if the listeners don't know it was this incredible Evan selected this incredible uh, image of Duke. And I don't even know where you got the image. It wasn't one that was well-known. Uh, and w- and you put it on the big issue, the cover of the big issue, which was a big-ass deal back in the day, uh, probably the biggest deal back in the day. And um, what was some of the pushback that you got inside the building regarding the Duke yeah, issue?
2: Yeah, it was really funny. Um, so this at, at this time, we had brought in Chris Morrow as well. So we were kind of both uh, – um, you know, just say like pro surfing affiliated um, younger uh, generation people that were really pushing like the, obviously the momentum generation of time, but also like the annies and, and Bruce's of the time that were just rising. But when that issue came around, I mean, obviously we're looking at Century of Surfing and um, it was Jason Murray and Chris Morrow and myself that like really landed on this, this image of duke that we found in the archives i think it was from the bishop museum um of duke when he was 20 and it just was such a regal image um but he's wearing a suit and he's very you know prim and proper and and all that which is like the antithesis of what like somebody like sam george would would you know wax nostalgic about um around like the beach boy era and duke himself and you know for good reason like these guys were um just the ultimate like <laughs> gods of the beach. Um, but there was something about it that really just, um, you know, connected with us. And so we, we sort of had to do the, you know, the lobbying efforts from, you know, getting divine on board. And the I'd say the biggest voice against it was, was Sam, which was awesome because he's very opinionated and he's always good about having a healthy debate. But I remember distinctly him saying that, he looked like an encyclopedia salesman (laughs) in the the photo and he's just was super off it. Um, But we, we pushed ahead (laughs) and uh, yeah, I'm still uh, to this day. It feels, it feels like the right choice. Yeah. It's a great cover. It surprises me that Sam is the guy that
1: that was pushing back. Seems like Sam would be the guy that would love that image.
2: Well, like I said, he's wearing a suit, right? Like, so if Duke was like, you know, standing on top of diamond head with the wind blowing in his hair. And he had a (laughs) loincloth or something like super into it, but it was, you know, he didn't like the suit thing. I don't think.
1: (laughs) And wasn't there some pushback from the advertising department as well, or was the separation of church and state pretty solid at that time?
2: It was, it was very respected, but, um, you know, we had Ricky Irons in the building at the same at the time and there was a notorious, well, let's just say healthy, um, healthy tension between Ricky and I, the Slater versus Irons, the other rivalry. Um, And uh, so he never held back his opinion because he was like one of the the lead ad sales uh, people at the time. And he thought it was a, he wanted, you know, I remember, oh, because what happened was (laughs) it was at the same time as one of those first giant chopu swells happened. And Corey Lopez got that like crazy wave, right? Like the one that everybody had talked about and um at the time it just had never been done and so we had all this incredible imagery from from that cory wave and i remember all the ad sales guys just thought we were out of our minds because we're not running cory on the cover um yeah it's even like the the story is even um recounted in, inside the issue um so we put we photoshopped duke in a tube at Chopu <laughs> just to appease him um within the issue but yeah it was a it was a very healthy debate and it goes back to like, you know, supporting the now versus, um, uh, you know, trying to uh, create a time capsule that really stood, stood the test of time. And, and, and so we, we pushed ahead with, he was the surfer of the century that that we declared and we had to honor him that way.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, it was, it's, you're right. It does stand the test of time, that issue, right? It's a great Mm -hmm. issue. You mentioned some writers, Evan. Um, you mentioned Derek Hine. You mentioned Sam George, uh, Steve Barilotti. Uh, as an editor, understanding timelines and word count and, frankly, cost,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, who's your favorite writer as an editor, and who's your favorite writer as an end-user consumer?
2: Those are great questions. Um, I've always just, um, given so much of, uh, I, I feel so indebted to Steve Hawk as somebody who really allowed me to find my own voice in my own writing. And, and there's a certain clarity to Steve's writing that, um, and just simplicity, um, but also, you know, profoundness, I guess, like when he, when he finds the right, um, thread to, to, to talk about or to really focus on that I I really appreciate because I think it's, um, a type of writing that can apply, um, to any genre or, um, world, you know, like his, his, his point of view is very relatable, I think to a broader, um, audience. I would say as far as like me personally growing up, I, I, um, cherish the travel articles that, um, Dave Parmenter wrote. And to this day I still do. So I'd have to put him in my, um, Hall of Fame as, uh, you know, somebody that really inspired me to want to, you know, pursue that path, um, you know, on my, you know, once I became of age, um, and then as far as an editor goes, um, geez, that's, that's a, that's a good one. I would say, I would say, uh, as far as an editor goes, this is might be kind of a weird one, but, um, Sam George was, always really good really fast <laughs> um he might not have because he, he, he was such a wealth of knowledge internally that um he didn't he never felt like he needed to do the research and take the time and and do all those things so he he always had a, a take that was fun and um maybe prov- provocative but he also was super efficient and and putting thoughts together and, and and creating um stories that really uh made an impact um with a magazine. So I would say as an editor, it was always fun to to challenge Sam to come up with a, um, a a take on a certain topic and put together an argument for it. And he would do it quickly, efficiently, and convincingly. And um, I was, I really enjoyed working with him.
1: Did you ever consider the magazines simply marketing vehicles for the industry? Or did you view it as like, Hey, we're journalists. We're going to tell the truth no matter what. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as surf journalism or is it, in fact, just really (sighs) writers, really great writers that are somewhat limited because there are some things we simply can't go to?
2: Yeah, I think it's super nuanced in our world and it's probably similar in a lot of other spaces um, where we're not the New York Times. You, You could never be the New York Times within um, uh, you know, uh, such a, the small bubble that is the, the surf world. Um, but at the same time, I think you can, um, tell real stories that, that, um, you know, are, are chain, uh, um, just change like we, we can be agents of change as a, as a surf media, um, institution. Um, but it's just done differently and probably done in a more nuanced way. For example, um, you know, like surf journalists throughout a, a lot of these, um, athletes careers knew how much they would, in, you know, indulge in whatever, you know, partying substance <laughs> that you can imagine. Um, but you, if you, as somebody that, you know, would be working, you know, sharing the same lineups with these people on a daily basis, um, you couldn't just like come out and do the, some salacious tell all, right. It, you just, you just would have to work around those edges. Um, but I think it's it's gotten to the point where there is such a um, there is more of a separation between um, the the kind of Internet jockeys and the actual, you know, the print media staff that were going on these trips with these athletes and like really, you know, embedding themselves. Um, I say it's a little bit different now, but I think there was some quality, um, some quality journalism that came out of um, so many decades uh, within the surf surf media world that um really again stands the test of true journalism but also um true surf culture i think uh, that was a little bit of a convoluted answer but sorry
1: no it's true i mean look you you're going to be um you're not going to get access if you go crazy and tell <laughs> these you know headline grabbing stories i thought uh, somebody
2: who like more recently and it's not super recent but somebody who really um did a really good job of like skirting that edge and obviously got called out like f- in his face. Number of times was Lewis Samuels. He was, um, you know, he was, he said he, he in a lot of ways said things that we wanted to say and he just did it, but he would still take it and, and, you know, sit in the, you know, the athlete area or whatever during contests and, and get an earful from whoever was disgruntled. But, um, yeah, he, he, um, I thought he pushed it, um, well, because at the end of the day, these guys are. Um, you know, world-class athletes that have to be able to, you know, and they're public figures too. And so as long as you're not like just taking personal attacks on them and more about like, you know, their maybe shortcomings on a wave or whatever it might be like, they should be able to take that.
1: What about um, the story that Brad Malekian told to outside magazine about the death of Andy Irons? Hmm. Where were you specifically in your career at that time? Were you at Swell Surfline or were you no. at surfing
2: or where were you? I was out of surf media. So I was, um, I was at Hurley at the time. I, what were your uh, thoughts on that? Um, well, it's, it's, a it's a hard one for me because I, most of my career at surfing magazine was really entrenched um, with covering the Andy Kelly rivalry and, you know, Andy's rise and his, you know, sort of, you know, uh rough patches, you know, going through the back half of the mid the early two thousands. Um so it was like like I said, it was one of those things where you kind of knew a lot of the stuff that was going on, but you'd have to try to find a way to tell the story without overtly telling the story. Um I think I think it was a little too early to probably try to do some like tell all on Andy in the sense obviously he had passed, but I think with time um, you're just getting a better understanding of all the factors that were involved in with Andy's situation. And it wasn't like an an, um, enabling industry and all these other things that were insinuated because the reality is um, Andy, you know, like was, he had people from all different angles trying to get him help. It was, it was really Andy doing what he was going to do like (laughs) that. He was had the resolve to do those things because he was hurting, um, internally, but, um, he had a lot of different support, um, group, you know, people that were trying to help him. Um, and so it, like trying to like create this, um, this, this, uh, what is it? This tell all kind of, um, scenario that, you know, unveiling the, the corruption of the industry it was, it was kind of wrong ultimately just cause I've lived on both sides of that. And I know how these things work these guys are going to do what they're going to do.
1: Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, Evan, you, you held positions at both surfer and surfing magazines and they had a heated rivalry for a Mm -hmm. very long time, really till the end, even though at some point prime media or whoever purchased both of them or purchased surfing, but they're both long gone now. Um, So you can go ahead and tell us now, Evan, that Surfer was the better magazine, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, For certain years, yeah. I think it was the years uh, between 97 and 99. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, look, they both um, had their strengths and had their eras of dominance. Um, You know, if you look at the late 80s, um, when like uh, Nick Carroll and... Bill Sharp and Dave Gilovich and um, Sam George um, and flame at his pe- like just ultimate, like height of powers. Um, that was an amazing era for surfing magazine, man. Like they were, they just, they had some issues that are still just, if you go back, you're, you're blown away at what they did with, without uh, digital, <laughs> like without um, email <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like all the rest. Um, and, and, And I'd say surfer, you know, like obviously has that sort of, um, I guess, more nostalgic, like positive sentiment for just the duration, right? Just because it was the first and all of that. So it was a little bit more, I think it had a little bit more leeway to have its ups and downs, but still be universally loved um, or at least, you know, um, appreciated. Um, But, you know, like I said, that there are... Both magazines, you know, fulfilled their potential because the other existed. the The rivalry was was real. It was awesome. I love competition, so um, and healthy competition, and, and it was fun being on both sides of those of that camp. And you know, when I was at Surfer Magazine, Flame was like um, Darth Vader, dude. Like, I mean, because I had a relationship with him before I went to Surfer as a quote unquote pro surfer. But as soon as I went to the other guy, other camp, which he called it, um, he he cut me off. He wouldn't talk to me. But then I went and worked back with him at swell, and then later surfing. And you just get to see the points of everybody's people. Everybody is uh, have their you know pluses and minuses. But um, yeah, I just was able to have more empathy, I guess, for both sides. And then just that helped me uh, helped me apply that to you know, my career moving forward, really, too, just understanding I was on both sides of the DMZ. Yeah.
1: And and now, of course, as I mentioned, they're gone. And
2: I'm mm-hmm. wondering,
1: it seems like there should be and perhaps there already is a place, a vehicle for somebody to distribute that same authority, the same voice, that thing that you and I were talking about as kids, when we flipped through the magazine, we knew there this was the foundational piece from which our culture was going to be distributed. Mm-hmm. What is that space now? Who owns that space? Does, does one particular entity, is, is there a vacuum? Is there a void? Do we need to fill this?
2: I, th- I would say, um, after, um, surfing and trans world and then, you know, surfer all sort of just, you know, fo- folded or whatever got shut down. Um, there certainly was a little bit of a, a vacuum, especially as WSL came in hot, right? Like they came in in 2013, 14 as this new entity, um, you know, whereas the brands before were really controlling the tour and, and the messaging through each of these um, broadcasts, I I think, and with the industry in a little bit of turmoil at that time as well. Um, you j- you did see this, like, who's going to really own, um the narrative in surfing. And, and um, I think that's sort of recalibrated um, now um, and it'll probably continue to recalibrate. Um, but you, you are seeing a little bit more of a balance between brands, um, digital media, and then the WSL really finding its place in the surf culture as well. Um, whereas, uh, I, you know, I'd say, look, look at surf media now, like the, the two outlets you think of are Surfline and stab, Well, they don't really compete with each other at all, right? Like Surfline, I honestly only go to Surfline to look at the cams and um, maybe a you know a a shocking swell from chopper or something. Um, And and then likewise, Stab is going to give you like the best in like new new surf film and media, like and and they might have a take on something that's pretty interesting. Um, So. I I'd say it's actually more balanced now than it was. I don't know if like having two rivals that maybe crossover is a better thing or a worse thing like surfer and surfing and even transworld back in the day. But right now it is, it feels fairly balanced, but maybe a little um, sanitary or something. I don't know. There's not, there's not a whole lot of crossover. There's a lot of blows being exchanged. <laughs> I would agree. I think stabs
1: doing a pretty damn good job of, kind of seeing the vacuum and taking it and running yeah. with it. Like for sure. Like, I think Mike, Michael C. is a, a pretty damn good writer. He's an, an interesting great. guy. UCSD uh,
2: alumni too, fellow Triton. There you go. Yeah. Solid.
1: Yes. Um, sociology
3: major. <laughs> <in biology. laughs> Maybe. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I actually took social UCSD <laughs> and I was trying to remember my <laughs> professor's names, but I can't remember. Uh, but So Stab, I think, is doing a great job, right? And it doesn't seem like, to me, anybody's competing with Stab, frankly. I would love it if Surfline stepped up their game editorially a little bit. And perhaps they are. I don't know. Uh, And I, too, am a big fan of Surfline. I would like to see some competition. I think it would be healthy. Do you agree with me or disagree with me that right now Stab is the authoritative voice? Because I don't think brands can be the authoritative voice. I don't care how great they are and how actually how, how some of their messaging is true. I can't rely on brand. I need an, I need something a little bit more objective.
2: hundred uh, percent fair. I think, I think brands absolutely have the opportunity to contribute to surf culture, right? Like, um, you know, there's, there's plenty that we can, we should do in the surf space because we have the budgets and, and, you know, let's be honest, a lot of um, former editors and people in the surf media world work for brands now. Um, we have the ability to like add to the conversation and add value to surf culture. So, but as a new, as a neutral, unbiased voice in surf, totally agree. Um, I think stab by far has really the 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 most authority and 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 trust, I guess, amongst the you know the core surf culture. As far as if stab if stab says something is cool, you're gonna you're gonna listen to him. Whereas I don't think anybody, almost anybody else, does in our space, unless you're just following, if, if you're a fan of an athlete, you know, or surfer.
1: <laughs> what are your current responsibilities, Evan? Now, the listeners probably don't know, but maybe mm-hmm. they do. I believe you're the, uh, I want to say the executive director or the vice president of marketing at Billabong.
2: Yeah, I, I had a, um, the title as VP of global marketing um, for Billabong. So um, uh, Billabong is, is, is men's and women's business. And so there's almost... Uh, two separate orgs between the two. So I have a counterpart on the women's side, but we work very closely on stuff. Um, but so I oversee the men's men's business on the marketing side.
1: So I was looking at your team. I'm interested yep. in your team. Yeah, Help me understand the return on investment for a team that has a lot of people on it, quite frankly. Yep. You've got a big yep. team. You've got Edlo. Yep. you've got Griffin, you've got Seth. I understand those three. Almost from a regional perspective, Seth's a, a Hawaiian legend, his family. Griffin is incredible. And Idlo, obviously a gold medalist, a world champion, and also plus-plus a Brazilian. Yep. Then you've got Shane Dorian, Joel mm-hmm. Parkinson, Andy Irons,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Ethan Ewing, who I get, Ryan Cowan, Jack Freestone, Aki, and you've yep. got a bunch of other people underneath. Yeah. How do you, do you look at the team sometimes and go, man, we, we could probably get just as much ROI out of one of these guys as five of these guys. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. And certainly like exercises that I've had to go through since, you know, going over to Hurley, like in 2009 and um, living through that like 10 years there. And then now at Billabong, um, you can make an argument you know almost for for anybody to be on your team right so it really comes down to um just looking at the overall roster and and coming up with a strategy that that makes sense for the business and having like a real like okay we need to make sure that you know we're not you, you know so handcuffed by athlete salaries that we can't do anything else right um, are
3: you
1: handcuffed by athlete salaries
2: at this point um no i mean it's it's certainly a, a good portion of our marketing spend, but it's not nearly to the levels of what we were looking at back in the early days when we had like John and Julian and Felipe and Colohe and Chris and you know, the list goes on, right? Yeah. Like that was, that was Nike
1: kind hard. of combo.
2: Yeah. And that was, that was still money that we had to find out. Nike wasn't giving it to us. So, um, but you know, the one thing that that's been remarkable um, just I've only been at Billabong for three and a half years. And honestly, it's been more about just continuing to um, build the profiles of, of the team writers that, that had been grown at Billabong from the ground up. So most of these guys, Idolo accepted because he kind of came in as like a guy from out of nowhere. We signed him, I think in like 2016, right? When he was starting to make his breakthrough. Almost everybody else, um, particularly the ones on the CT were, were developed through the bloodlines program and and what bloodlines is basically our youth program um and you know we have like guys like reynos hayes in the trenches in, in hawaii and chris hefner like oversees um you know the global sports marketing um uh, function and um they made a plan i think it was like when parko taj and andy were all aging you know like post trilogy and they're like Sh- shit we have these three titans of the sport but we don't really have anybody coming up under and so it's honestly been these guys who have just grown since you know age 10 or 12 or whatever it is and now here they are in the ct and a lot of them have been with the brand that long so it's 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 one of those things where you have to like you know you have to place your bets on people and when they, when they come to um fruition i think it's important to do everything you can to keep them on board and keep um supporting them um but you know people come and go like there's there's definitely people who are part of the bloodlines program who are no longer with billabong, you know, just, just,
1: what about some of these? Like, to me, I I look at guys like I look at Joel Parkinson and I look at Mark Acalupo and I say to myself, from a marketing standpoint, this is kind of the same guy. Although Mm -hmm. Aki's billabong legacy. And of course you could argue that, that Joel is too, but I mean, I've got two Australian 40 somethings that are kind of doing the same thing. Like, and I know you can't speak to this. I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I, I look at some of these things. I go, it seems like there's too much crossover here on some of these things like Ethan and Ryan Callahan.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Do we really need both of those guys? You know, mm-hmm. And again, I'm I'm just riffing. I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just, oh, that's I'm, right. I, get
3: uh, right. I get
1: Ethan. I, mean, I think Ethan is, has the potential to be a world champion.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe Ryan does too. Cause he's a red hot surfer as well. But, Again, I just see a big team, and I go, "Wow, man! Maybe just salaries got cut in half, and so it's no big deal." No,
2: no, it's all a big deal. But then again, you have to look at it almost like a, um, like a traditional sports team, and everybody has their roles, um, and everybody is on the team for a specific reason. Like the things that Aki does for us are there's so many intangibles. But on top of that, I mean, like you can plug them into any sales meeting or any. You know, take him to whatever shop and or put him, bring him on any tour, and he is the the life. The yeah, he's like the the ultimate. Like people want to see hockey still. He's it's it's him and Tom Curran are still have that pull. Totally agree.
1: Totally agree. And
2: and Parco has a similar cachet, particularly in Australia. Man, he's he's so. Yeah, we're, we're not keeping everybody, like, on board. And it, it really comes down to, like, the relationships that these guys have, particularly, you know, specifically with the brand and what they want to do with the rest of their lives post-career, um, post-tour. But um, there's, there's value for, for all of them. We don't, we don't put we're, – we're not the dole, right? We don't put anybody on the team just yeah. to put them on. So um, everybody is kind of serving a purpose.
1: How important is, is their social media profile? when you're looking at these guys, because obviously that's a big issue, you know? Yeah. G- Gabe Medina has whatever, 2 million or something. I don't know. Uh, Gabe,
2: Gabe's at like 9 million. He's the, by far the um, most yeah. followed um, surfer in the world. Well, yeah, most followed um, pro surfer in the world. Um, social media is important. I mean, as you know, that it, relying on these, I don't want to get too into the digital marketing Um
3: Weed. well is
1: it, I often wonder is it almost is it almost losing some of its cachet because everybody's got twenty five thousand followers you know and, and so it's kind of like like and we see them all it doesn't matter if Gabe has nine and and aki has two million I'm still seeing aki and Gabe on my feed.
2: yeah I think there's there's um there's a new way that you we need to evolve or get to a place that we need to get to beyond um like our team writers posting stuff about billabong on their their social feeds like that that's just so um like 2014 or something you know what i mean like we don't, we, we uh yeah we really are, are trying like we continue to work on new ways of um evolving beyond that and it's it's kind of like another tool but it's certainly not the answer um or the one thing that we look at um i mean I, I was talking about, I forget who I was talking about this with, but like if, if a team writer came, if, if there was somebody that we wanted to sign and, and they had a firm stance on like, n- they don't do social media at all. I mean, that might play to their advantage and we would still consider it. It's not like you have to have a certain following to be considered by Bill along or any of that.
1: Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. Sure. Um, WSL. Yes. What do you think they're doing? Right.
2: Well, I think um, there's been a lot of learning since 2013. I think um, like a lot of, let's just say, organizations that um, come into the space, and this is like a typical formula, but they came in ultimately thinking or wanting to own it all, right? Like big wave tour, big wave awards, um, you name it. Like it was like all in, we're going to own all media and we're going to be this one. Um, But just realizing that, the, at the core, the WSL or the ASP or whatever that pro surf league is serves one primary purpose, and that's to put on amazing events and show them well. That's it um, of the best surfers in the world and, and the best spots in the world. And I think it's getting more and more to that place. Um, it's taken a while for sure um, because there's you know been a lot of um, bets that've been placed and you know, attempts at, you know, media company or just production companies, all the rest. But um, I'd say I, all, all the the decisions they've been making despite all the, the, you know, the, the, uh, I don't know, just all the backlash they're getting on like the cut and all this other stuff. I think all those decisions are the right decisions. This year has been to me the the clearest path to becoming a pro surfer since I don't know when, where you have a regional series, you have a challenger series, you have the CT. There's a cut in the CT. Like all of those things are great, Um, and um, yeah, you're only as good as your last event. So then you, (laughs) but and people for some reason love to complain about the WSL. But honestly, um, I don't. I think um, at least our industry would be kind of lost without a tour um, that that exists like it does today.
1: Yeah, you know, look, WSL is low hanging fruit. I'm the first one to bash on them almost yeah. on a weekly basis, but I love pro surfing and I love actually love what the WSL is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, they're you know sometimes they get off the path a little bit. Sure. But I do have one uh, thing that I've been harping on for a long time, and is it their
2: ladder sponsor. Or no, no, you're cool with that. <laughs> they have um, a ladder
1: sponsor. Yeah, it's
2: awesome. <laughs> I, I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> i had no idea but i'm actually okay with it i don't really give okay, a shit yeah. as long as they stay the stay the path
2: daily ladders dude wait, wait for the next plug you'll see it
1: awesome. i'm i'm totally down with i actually <laughs> like that i think that's good let me but but here's my thing evan is that as an end user right as an end user yes i feel like they're failing me um, okay. and and i'm of the opinion that the waves are the stars and a yeah. great example of this is is thundercloud that day at cloud break. And I guess mm-hmm. it was 10 years ago. They just shut it on surfline. Yeah, L- Look, what was the stars, the waves? Did I care that it was Dave Wassell? Hell no. I was stoked that it was Dave Wassell going. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and so I have this theory that we should have for lack of a better phrase, sort of a purple blob tour. And to pull that off, we need to trim down the, the amount of labor, the amount of surfers. We need yeah. 12 surfers, maybe 20 surfers. Yeah. And they don't even have to be CT surfers. Evan. I'm saying in perfect waves, one day, maybe two day events, say it's six to eight foot can left or J Bay or cloud break or whatever. Yep. Are you a fan of putting really great surfers? They don't have to be CT guys. Cause that might be a conflict or maybe the, maybe the WSL changes their tune and, and does it this way. But do you believe that the waves are the stars? Uh.
2: I do. I think they're one of the stars for sure. But what the, these guys and girls do on the waves is also a big reason for why I tune in. Um, what okay, let me talking- stop
1: you right there. Okay. Would, you, would you tune in pay-per-view to see Clay Marzo and, I don't know, Noah Dean or let's even throw Jack Freestone into the equation here because he's a billabong guy. In uh, perfect six to eight foot, can do he left for a day of competition.
2: Would I'm a surf nerd. You? I watch ISA like one foot, like low tide closeouts. With is it marketable? There, then or- put on your marketing. Um, app. Is it marketable? Um, would you sponsor possibly, it? Possibly, but here's the thing: there has to be stakes and there has to be an end goal. Um, so watching those, of course, I'm going to watch those guys in waves like that. But I would rather watch um i don't know <laughs> head high J bay when it's the the event before the the top five are going to be decided and we're going to we want to see who who makes that top five cut in you know pumping J bay or whatever it is it could even be average J bay yeah but no, i would
1: no we I'd can't mean, have average J bay we need well, pumping J bay
2: okay well but that's, that's my, my point, point. but, but you know, that's my <laughs> point is like i would i would rather see the pressure that is mounted on the felipes and the gays yeah. and all the rest of the world um, and see what they do in these heats versus um, high fives um, coming out of the barrel uh, I, for an afternoon. Okay.
1: Like, so let's meld we, our things. watch I,
2: cams uh, all day if you want to do that. Yeah. Right?
1: We're on the same page. I agree with you. There's, this is a tour. It's the purple blob tour. And yeah. it only, it only goes when there's an insane swell at one of these prime spots, understanding there's logistics involved. It's not as easy as I'm making it sound. That's why we need less surfers on tour and it does culminate in a world championship isn't that the perfect
2: yeah they they try to it. it's called the big wave world tour and it's really hard to pull off
1: <laughs> i don't i think the big
2: wave world tour
1: is way harder from a purple blob standpoint i, I maybe i'm wrong i don't know
2: but, but honestly dude like it's even it would be the same difficulty like it's just there's so many variables in in pulling together these things in the last minute and um like you know ask ask the guys on how hard it was to like be a part of the big wave world tours it's just it's just really logistically demanding and um yeah i don't know like not to to be pessimistic about it but i honestly think you know a couple of those you know super bowl type big wave events a year are enough um and whoever like those the those should still exist but the tour as it exists is not that far off from the best it can be like right. it keep evolving and keep, you know, incrementally improving, but it's not going to be scrap everything and start over with a purple blob tour. It's just not, I, I just honestly, right. but that's my opinion.
1: So. Well, no, I, I, I think that, see, I think that we're, I think we're, I agree with you. I think we're just a massage or two away from doing it right. Like why do we go to G land and there's 10 foot on, on the beginning and end of the swell and we don't go, Hey, let's just hang out for a few more days understanding we're going to have to pay the resorts fine, whatever. Yeah. We're the world surf league for God's sake. We should be surfing an eight to 10 foot G land if we're here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway,
1: true. let me, sure. let me, let me then ask you this. Cause you mentioned big wave surfing and competition. Yeah. I'm a believer that we should have one event of the world's top surfers in the world at jaws or at Mavericks or a big wave event. One event of the, eight or whatever it is.
2: Uh-huh. What do you think? Um, I think it's a different type of surfing, honestly. Um, and, and some, some would thrive and somewhat. And I get, I get what you're saying. It's just like the complete, the, the world champion is the complete surfer from 50 or 60 or whatever it is to two foot. Um, but I, I do feel like it's a uh, different type of surfing. And right. so um, you're going to be putting, People out in in situations that they've never been in, um, and that could be probably okay. not a good idea. You
1: know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um,
2: Remember in '86 when Gary Green and Bryce Ellis didn't paddle out?
1: Yeah. You have a lot of those. I I was I'm kind of okay with that, but I you know like <laughs> I mean. <laughs> You know who did paddle out? Mark Richards, and he won. And,
2: and Ross Clark on a 7-10.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, those guys, I want those guys to be my uh, champion.
2: Yeah, no, I know, I know. Um,
1: you mentioned something which I think is important, but maybe we don't have to get too deep into it. But I feel like the WSL's job is to crown a men's and women's world champion surfer, a high-performance world champion surfer. I feel like they're failing – I feel like they're mailing it in with this longboard tour the mm-hmm. big wave event has already been mailed in yep. these events from a from a mark from a vice president of global marketing does the world longboard tour or the big wave event move the needle for you
2: no yeah i mean i i think they're valid um at, they can they can you know if they're the, but, does
1: the does but, the lady no. that's on the other side of you feel the same way
2: does the what? Does
1: the the woman that's the vice president of marketing for Billabong Women's feel the same way about 100%. the
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And and when I say that, I just don't think they're being served oh. like they should, or they're not getting the attention or investment that they can. And it's not the WSLS fault because they they were initially trying to take on too much. Let get rid of it. Like let somebody else Vance. What a if Vance
1: said, "Hey, I'm sure. running this." Vance-
2: Longboard tour. Awesome. I uh, I'm all for it. And I think as long as it's uh, you know, more of an inclusive, like bringing in all of surf culture and not just like, like a Vans, Vans, Vans thing. Um, I think it had, would have a ton of value for surfing. Um, and then it, like, likewise on the big wave front, I don't think there's a tour is feasible, but I think a couple of one-off incredible events with sp- sponsors and all the rest totally makes sense. Or you you are basically working around the year in the for for the full calendar year to set yourselves up for one successful home run event.
1: Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to when I would burst into editorial meetings with really shitty ideas, and you'd just be like, "No, no, that's not, that's not that's not going to work."
2: Bassie, I I will I will have to give you a shout out though because um, I I know you remember this, but. I think you're one of the few people that can say you got a job because you were ripping at salsa puertas one day. It was pretty epic. (laughs) Uh, All time, 98 uh, afternoon and Steve Hawk saw you. And I I think he like worshiped the ground that you walked on after you got out and basically brought you into the fold after that. It's pretty cool. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you there? Weren't you there that time? I was there, yeah. yeah. I just remember being out by myself, looking up and seeing five guys on the rim of the ledge up there. I'm going, oh, my God. What are these five guys going to invade me right now?
2: Yeah. yeah cool. It was all good. Anyway, so, yeah, you got
1: Thank some good that day. That is my only qualification. <laughs> I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, most iconic rides in history, Evan. Yes. Um, I want you to rate these. Uh-huh. You might not even agree with them because they're okay. coming from my imagination here sure well first of all let me ask you this what do you think is the number one most iconic ride in our history the most iconic ride in our history
2: well i mean i only go to the the ones that are still just burning in my brain um and it was funny i i just i think power lines um just recently reposted them peter's wave at at mavericks from yeah uh, whatever year that was 2020, 21. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, the thing that really got me emotional was, um, watching his just reaction afterward and sitting in the channel and just burying his heads and burying his head and all that. I mean, I, I just, not that I know the feeling of what he accomplished on that wave because nobody had, nobody does. Um, but I know everything that went into it, um, because I was surfing, you know, side-by-side side with him in 90, three or 94, whatever it was yeah, um, out there. And it, all those years led up to that moment. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. And I, and I think of that wave, I think of Laird's wave because it's a similar kind of thing where his whole toe career and all that led up to that one wave in 2000. And yeah, those, that wave was <laughs> oddly enough, a dime a dozen now, but like, that was just a, a moonshot, right. Yep. At the time. Um, I think of a couple of the wave paddle waves at Chopu. I think that Corey, one that I mentioned before was really a, a, a game changer. Yeah. Um, um, pipe um, geez, there's, there's just so many that I, I think, you know, Kelly probably owns like the top 10 of those iconic rides. Um, There's a wave that Kern got at back door that I, I remember that everybody um, freaks out on. Huh. Uh, remember that one? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, here,
1: well, let me say this. Let me say this. I have my five here.
2: You, okay. You've mentioned
1: yeah. I have Peter Mel's Mavericks yes. Wave behind the ball life changer. That's my number one because I'm yeah. That's at the top my of my list. list here. I agree with you. Yeah. I have Laird's Millennium Wave at Chopu. Yeah, and then I have Kelly's first wave at the Surf Ranch, the one that broke the internet as an iconic ride in surf history. That's cool. I have the Sean and Mark Richards tube battle at Off the Wall. Basically, yes. during free ride when they were
2: fair, I could. I, I have
1: mean. I have Hinson's wave at Cape Saint Francis. I was maybe. just
2: gonna say that. Okay, yeah, that, I think that that one's that one's. Yeah, you got to You got to put that one in there for sure. Now what uh, about, about Little's uh, YMA
1: Barrel in the ninety-one Eddie?
2: It uh, didn't come out. Don't make okay. it. I don't. Well, right. like it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, not makes sense. No, pretty. I, I mean his his wipeout on the bigger wave was. Definitely one that's like burnt in your brain for sure. Is that
1: the is that the the photo? I think yeah. it made the cover or something. Or how, big, how
2: big can little go poster, or whatever. Yeah, yeah.
1: What about one of the Coa Smith GoPro point of view at Skeleton Bay for about three minutes?
2: Yeah. So I I the to this day the best ways that I've ever surfed in my life were was that trip that we did to Skeleton Bay it was a Google Earth challenge in like whatever two thousand eight. And and so, whatever waves I see there, I just put it back on the waves or the vision that I've seen there. And, how uh,
1: how? Tell me about that place. What what's that yeah. wave like? It looks like it's really hard to surf.
2: Um, it's it's, you know, it's like it's the same as those those crazy sand points. It's a sand spit, but um, it it depends. Like I think the the day I got it, it was not as it was. I don't know every bit of six foot, but it wasn't that crazy below sea level stuff that you're seeing on those really big swells like the yeah. yeah co's gotten in the past and stuff so for us it was absolutely flawless and we surfed nine hours straight and got more barrels than i've ever yeah. dreamed of so and and, yeah. and i think everybody has a, a similar experience there when they when they get a wave there that's just so beyond anything they've ever imagined you just have to sit on the beach for a second and take it all in
1: do you do you ever feel like you're initially like the first two, three, four or five waves where you're you're just not gonna make it. Like you're kind of feel like it's outrunning
2: you, but then you keep catching up. Just keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. The other thing that's weird about that place is that, you know, we spend our whole surf lives thinking that, you know, the next or the best way of your life is on the horizon, right? Um, once you go there, you know that you're not gonna get a better wave than that. <laughs> And so, it's a little bit of a like the other side of the hill kind of thing. It's really weird, man. And so that was like, like I said, two thousand eight, and I came back. It was like midsummer or whatever, and oh, sort no. of like closed out Pono or whatever oh, it is. And and it, you got kind of go through this weird like I don't know limbo like depression foil or something yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe that but no it was it was really um, it was really interesting to experience that because I think. Um, You know, so many people it's hard for people to go the best way of my life was X. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So
1: what about, um, you know, Derek Ho got that 10 at pipe. Mm -hmm. Um, That one's on my list of potentials. Of course, the Tom Carroll snap at pipe.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. I don't know if it was like the best wave of, well, there's countless jaws waves too, that you gotta, you gotta take into consideration. Um, one that Dorian got, um, Billy Kemper's had a crazy ones. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard to like really nail a top five. I think what you, that list that you have is, is really good as far as, um, a, a broad spectrum of iconic moments in surf that changed something. Right. Yeah. And
3: yeah, yeah.
2: To, I would say the only, the only one that didn't change something and is more of just an exclamation point at the end is Pete's wave. Like that's been attempted for how many decades and he finally did what we all dreamed of doing.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting one. I'm trying to argue against you here. Um, What you said earlier is that to me, that's, that's 25 years of culmination. You know, that's not just, Oh yeah. He paddled out and got a killer wave to me. That's like, you know, like nobody has ever done what he did taking off way deep out, you know, and I don't know. I I just, I just felt that one. (laughs) VLAN style, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. What about Bruce's Eddie wave going left in the shore break, which is, yeah. Well, look, we've said a lot today, Kevin. Uh, cool. What are you riding these days?
2: I'm still trying to live the dream. I'm, I'm riding a 5'9", Timmy Patterson duster. That's like 28 liters, 27 something liters. Wow. That's pretty. Strange. Yeah. I'm really weird about that. I, it's It's probably like, going back to my weird like amateur days like I'm still trying to get like 5 point rides like get a few of those every morning and that like starts my day and then I'm good
1: when you catch a wave are you thinking about scoring points yes and 27 <laughs> liters <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's really bad, dude. I, I, I honestly have scores in my head when I get to the Oh, my God. So bad.
1: You need a, some sort of
2: an intervention of some sort. I know, dude. I Seriously. To get you an 11-foot glider. <laughs> but Hey, I will say, I, I do have a couple long words. I surf Terramar and like I, I try to balance it out. I gave up foiling. I was a foiler for like three years. Yeah. So I, I'm not like completely weird, just. Just why like, did you give up foiling
1: it's just not good, i don't know either. it was
2: like it's like you know how some people just like wake up one day and they stop drinking or something like it was yeah. the same thing i just woke up one day and i stopped no. foiling. <laughs> <laughs> no reason wow. yeah all right yeah cool well look
1: we've said a lot what else can we talk about anything else is there anything that you want to tell me about billabong and what's coming up with billabong
2: I'm, you know what, I love where I work and I feel super grateful um, to be a steward of um, the Billabong brand because it's, it's brought, it's done so much for surfing and given us so much like through the years, right? Like there's so many different memories. I'd say more than anything beyond working for Billabong as a brand or just working within the surf industry. um, I'm just... um, I'm, I'm I've always been an optimist and it's so easy as surfers to kind of look back at your developmental years or your glory years or whatever it might be and just be jaded. And I, I just don't, I don't think there's any room for that and it's not productive um, because the, the, the joy that surfing brings is still obtainable um, and will be obtainable for the foreseeable future. So I just still try to, um, Contribute to that, and then also find it for myself on a daily basis because I think it's the best way to live. <laughs> Honestly, I've. that's yeah.
1: I think we're gonna leave it right there. I think he nailed it right then. That was like drop the mic.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Right, Evan. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Bassy. Don't drop in on me at Cardiff or Swami's if I see. No, it. I, okay. I,
1: I don't do that. I'm, I'm,
2: <laughs> you got the wrong guy.
0: You <laughs> <He laughs> thought <laughs> I was going left. I know. I heard it all. <laughs> no, uh, dude, Thank uh, you. Well, appreciate it.